This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hey everybody, this is Sean Daly with Green Talk Radio. Well, most people don't think about where their water comes from. They simply take it for granted that it will be available on demand, coming out of the tap in plentiful supply. However, recent books, films, and international media coverage on water availability crises around the globe are bringing a greater awareness that perhaps we shouldn't be taking water for granted, and in fact that water, sometimes referred to as blue gold, is a precious resource on par with golden oil, over which future military and economic crises are inevitable. In addition, some water experts have pointed to the fact that large corporations, and in some cases governments, are making backroom deals that may affect the cost and availability of water in the not-so-distant future. Because of the essential nature of water to all life on the planet, this has brought water to the forefront of both the environmental and human rights movements. One of the first feature-length films to tackle this subject head-on is a documentary called Flow, How Did a Handful of Corporations Steal Our Water? The film asks a basic but very important question, can anyone really own water? The film, the brainchild of director Irina Selina, opened in September of 2008 and has helped to bring a greater awareness to many about the seriousness of these issues and the risks to mankind and the environment if we don't take action now to curtail present-day activities by corporations and governments that may threaten basic water rights for a large percentage of the world's population in the future. Wired Magazine referred to the documentary as, quote, the scariest movie at the Sundance Film Festival, unquote, after its screening there in 2008. My guest on today's show is Flo's director, Irina Selina. Irina started her career at the age of 15 as a radio journalist in Paris, and I've gotten the chance to speak a little French with her before the interview. I've been enjoying <laughs> her first feature-length film, Ghost Bird, The Life and Art of Judith Deem, in 2000, won Best Documentary at the 15th Fort Lauderdale Film Festival and the President's Award at Mexico's prestigious, I'll try this pronunciation, Ajijic Film Festival. So, Irina, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I just want to add one thing is that the original title was Flow for Love of Water. Ah, what happened to the original title? Well, you know, you, you have to, to, for the market, you have the distributor sort of changed it, but we always liked the idea of, of uh, including the word love. Yeah, it's funny. Hey, fear does sell better than, than love, unfortunately. I know, I know. <laughs> So, well, first of all, congratulations uh, to you on the success of the film. And I am curious to know, why did water become a cause for you in your own life and career as a filmmaker? And what originally inspired you to make this documentary? That's a good question. Well, it's, I have to rewind the film like way back because, as you know, the film came out in festivals for the first time in Sundance almost two years ago. Then you have to rewind almost five years ago which is almost seven years ago, <laughs> uh, when I wanted to do a documentary, but I documentary are hard to, to make, so I wanted to do something that really uh, took my passion on. And at the time, I was a new mother, and 
I had sort of, you know, from one ear to the other, heard a couple of stories. One from Robert Jr. Kennedy, uh, with with River Keepers, a famous uh, environment lawyer, and just I had heard him on the radio talking about stories of company would come at night and dump on the Hudson River some heavy chemical water and get away with it, and they were trying to clean the Hudson at the time. And then I heard about how some chemicals in water would actually come back in our system one way or another at, at minor doses, but, you know, if you accumulate them. And as a new mother, I was like, whoa, what's that? And slowly but surely, I made more research, and a friend of mine handed me a copy of The Nation, and it's I think it was 2002, if I recall, and it said, who owns water? Is water going to be the oil of the 21st century? And that sort of blew my mind. I never really thought about it like that, you know. Really, I live in New York. You just open your tap. You, you don't, you, you know, you, you, you sort of take it for granted. So I... I from there, I really sort of went, really went into a, 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 a journey. I went to a lot of countries I had never been before. I went to India. I went to South Africa. I looked at the situation here. I, and what I really wanted to do is, is sort of say to people, look, whether we're in Africa, whether we're in America, we, we're all in the same boat in some ways. We're all related to water. We're all need water to survive. Uh, it's sort of water has no passport. And then global warming started to come, you know, more more and more awareness of it. And and it's very related to water as well because when you look at example of water conservation in remote places in Rajasthan, for example, and they do an amazing work of water conservation, but if the rain that are supposed to come on time don't, uh, then you can do all the conservation of water you, you, you can or want. If there is no water, there is no water. So I, saw, I, start, I started seeing that how connected in a way we were, whether we were far away or here. Irina, I'm curious, based on that research. Sense, <laughs> yes, no, it absolutely does. And I'm curious, based on that research and the travel that you did, uh, for the film and in general, what countries do you see uh, being the flashpoints and front lines in the future or even possibly now for issues around water availability? I think all of us. I mean, have you looked at the paper recently with uh, California uh, going into uh, in a drought? You know, it's like it's no longer, oh, you know, that's, that's like some place in Africa where they have no water and... We, we don't really get a sense of it. I think we're going to get more and more of a sense of it, unfortunately. But I think we really... And I think when you go to a place like Africa or India, I actually made another film for an NGO in India, which I had to leave in those drown-prone area in Rajasthan. I actually, every day had to fetch my water and, and think of, okay, this will, I need to boil this, I will need to clean myself. You know, I was given an understanding of, you know, and it's heavy and you have to bring it from the wells. And it was such like an opening to me because never did I have to think about that here. I mean, people would laugh if you'd have to tell them that they have to walk half a mile to get water. And but I think the, we've seen it. There's been some heavy. Some if you look at the 
U.S. drought monitor map uh, of of the droughts that's that's in the United States, you will see that that more and more there are places where we will people will be told, please don't don't water your garden at at just any time of the day. Please conserve water. I think we we are going to to become more and more aware of it. Uh, are we ready for that? I don't know because here we are used to have things served to us. We're not used to go and get them. So, so it's going to be an adjustment, I think, in general with our consciousness. But I think this adjustment is not just water. I'm totally amazed right now. People are trying to reduce plastic, and I'm totally amazed when you go to the store. I live in Brooklyn, but when I go to a local store, you'll often hear people now say, no, I don't need a bag. Like they're really making a point, like they don't want a plastic bag. They they carry the, a bag with them while they put their food. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, it's that's like a minor little thing, but people are actually making a natural individual effort into that so there's less plastic. I see parallels here between Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and the strengthening of the environmental movement that sort of followed that around global warming and your film as well as the the new film uh, Blue Gold World Water Wars. Do you see uh, an activism movement around water happening in the coming years similar to sort of what was inspired by An Inconvenient Truth? I think uh, definitely. I think an in- I mean, I realized the power of An Inconvenient Truth when I was in a plane, I think either going to France or coming back from France. And you know those are long flights so you walk around, sometimes you talk to people. And there was this old couple, they must have been in their 70s, and I don't know how we started talking, that was years ago, about the Al Gore film. And, and they were talking how they, they didn't know anything about that, and it just really, they understood so much, and it scared them, but at the same time, they were happy to know about it. And I was like, wow. Because my daughter had told me about it, they had showed it in her school, so I was like, here goes a 70-year-old couple, here goes my daughter at the time, was like seven. It's like, and I'm like, I'm like, it, it actually was a great tool to, to, to bring the awareness. You know, I always say first, because people are like, so what are you expecting people to take action immediately? I'm like, you know what? First you plant the seed of awareness, you let it grow, then you let people take action. You know, you can't, things cannot change overnight. And I think the Algo film was a, a great awakening and I think other film, you know, like I said, I often say, you know, sometimes people are like, well, in screening, you didn't talk about the population, blah, blah, blah. like, this is only one film. If you knew, I wanted a three-hour film, but my distributor and my producer were not going to agree with that. And my film, and then, you know, it's like a marathon. I, I, Al Gore did the thing and he ran and he passed the wood onto someone and I did a film with as much time and money I had, and then I pass on the wood, and then the director, Sam Bozo of Blue Gold, did a film letter, and then he'll pass on the wood to someone, you know what I mean? It's like it percolates. It percolates, and, and we need those films, and we need those books, and we need those television series uh, to sort of bring awareness. Yeah, well, your film is certainly seminal in, in that regard. And your film discusses, Irina, among other things, the agendas and responsibilities of large corporations with regards to water rights and availability mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. this issue of how the privatization of water is a threat both to humans and the environment. 
Um, my question is, is this true, the soundbite? Are big corporations stealing our water from us while we sleep Well, here? it's not, you know, it's never as easy as that. There was some case in the last six, seven years of privatization of water, mostly in third world country, where it's, what happened is that the hookup to the water was maybe sometime a year of someone uh, working of their salary, so they couldn't hook up, so... What was the danger is this sort of thing saying privatization is there and it's going to help us. You know, in Atlanta, they lost their uh, big company in France, lost their contract because the water was, was uh, the quality was not good. The, the, the money you had to pay every month raised. I mean, there are cases over and over. And, and the idea is, to be realistic, you cannot say, oh, there will be no company, because it takes a lot of money to clean water. But you don't want to go in a situation where where there is no ownership of water, where there is no community-based uh, water project. You don't want to come in a place where all where the distribution of water is all private, because it's, it's uh, usually not very transparent, and you don't know, you know, you want to be sort of in touch of, of what's going on. And there have been cases that had been documented where there was a lot of problem. Now, to say that there will be absolutely no private company um, handling the the mass city, the huge cities in the future, I think it would be unrealistic for me, you know, to to say that won't happen. But at the same time, there is a message, for example, that's given in, by Peter Gleek in the film when he says the World Bank knows how to give a billion dollar in one place, and what we need often is a thousand dollar in a billion place. And that to me is a really true message because from the place I've traveled, I have seen remote little communities where they were examples of, of little solutions that were community-based solutions that made much more sense than the idea that one day a pipe from a long distance was going to come and provide them water that they would pay for. Okay, well, Irina, we're going to take a break right here, and we'll be right back. I'm talking with Irina Selina. She is the director of Flow, a new film that discusses issues around water availability and crises around the world, and asks a basic but a very important question, can anyone really own water? We'll be right back on Green Talk Radio. Hey everyone, we're back on Green Talk Radio. This is Sean Daly. I'm talking with Irina Selina. She's the director of a movie called Flow. How did a handful of corporations steal our water? We were talking before the break, Irina, about the film and some of the uh, issues around the world that deal with the water crisis and the privatization of water. And I had some specific questions I wanted to ask you. One of them is about something that's become quite famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, in the U.S. that relates to the T. Boone's Pickens plan. T. Boone Pickens plan, I should say. And he, he's a, a he, Pickens, of course, being the high, highly controversial Texas oil man who's spending $12 billion on the world's largest wind farm in the Texas panhandle. Uh, a lot of people have seen this as a, a big cover-up uh, critics of the plan basically are saying that it, the plan itself is essentially a ruse and it is in fact a, a massive land and water grab, which a lot of people were puzzled by in the beginning, that that, that was really seeking to put uh, him in the position of controlling water and being in a position to profit from selling water at higher prices in, in the future. 
Did you come across anything in, in your film research to, to qualify any of those assertions either way? I, I don't. I want to be careful about what I say because the Tibun the Tibun Begins piece we have in our film came actually from a news feed. So I never, <clears throat> I, I am reluctant to talk about someone uh, who I'm, I have not spent an hour speaking with personally, where I can feel their intention. And, and I know now he's into wind power. I think that's, that's what he's in right now. <clears throat> but I don't, I mean, there are a lot of, I don't, him I don't know, but there are a lot of speculation right now with water, you know, because think about it. Think about uh, a, a big uh, agribusiness uh, farm. They need a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Think of industry. Think of the pig industry. They need a lot of water. I mean, almost everything. Computers need water. Tires need water. To make oil, you need water. So obviously, there there is, I'm sure, uh, there are a lot of big interests in, in, in making sure that their company or their big industry has have enough water to, to provide to product, those products that you that they want to put out there. I also think that we, we're going to, because unfortunately of droughts and other things, we, we're really going to have to rethink our ways. We're going to have to rethink of, for example, just giving you an example, like if you are going to spend a certain huge amount of water to provide to food that will actually never make it here, it's just for export. Um, if we are going in a situation where we're running out of water, it, there's definitely going to be some struggle there of, well, I'm American, I need, I want my water for the food that I'm going to, you know, buy here and, and to drink, so why is all this water being somehow used for something that's going to be exported? I mean, I'm just blabbering about, but I'm just, I really feel like we, there's going to be a rethink of the, use of the usage of water. Yeah, well, I think they're definitely... And, and therefore, any big company that might want to use too much water for something, I know that, like, some of those big farms, I mean, the amount, not only the amount of water that they use, but but the the chemicals that is then going back, you know, in the land and then and then going in our rivers and stream is 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 really not good and. And and I just think there is a cycle. I, I mean, I again, we could talk about big companies and this and that, but I think it's really a general thing. I think there is a cycle, and and we sort of like Peter Greek says, there's a hard pass, and then there's a soft pass. The hard pass is the 21st century, where industrialized dams, big project, and I think somehow we're going to have to balance that because we're going to deal with. And also you have to remember that, I don't know the exact number, but 40% of rivers and streams, like in the United States, are too polluted to fish, swim, or drink. So you also have the pollution problem. It's like, how are you going to regulate all that pollution? And then like we talk about in the film, you have those pesticide and herbicide that are very strong and that are coming back in the system. And you know, like atrazine, for example. Atrazine is an herbicide that is banned for, I don't know, 15 years in Europe because they found out that not only, you know, it, it takes forever, even though they've banned it, it's, there are still traces of it. 
and there are biologists that saw that that it it was um, I don't know the word in English, but changing the course of of um, of reproduction in, in frogs and things like that. Ca- so causing genetic genetic mutations. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we look at frogs, but then maybe you know, sure we can prove it now, but what about human? And but in any case, it's been banned in Europe. We, it, takes us, it takes us some time to catch up uh, sometimes in the United States with these things or where we can be a little it's slow. Not here. And it's a product made in Switzerland, sold in the United States, but banned in Europe. I think in the world we live in now, where we are now, how come a product like that could be sold if it's banned in, 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 in all of Europe? That's, that's like the fundamental thing that I think a couple of years ago drove me crazy. You know, as a mother and as a human being, I was like, wait a minute, if we know something is not good, why are we putting it somewhere, you know? And there's this very strange connection, I would say, with place farms around the world that are use heavy pesticide and herbicide and decline of of sperm count, of 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 uh, people being able to have children. So yes, yes, we cannot prove it, but do we want to get to the place where, you know, where I, I think it's a fundamental question that, you know, talking about regulation, uses of water, it's, I think it's a fundamental question we need to ask ourselves. And, and it's interesting too, because, you know, some free market economists would offer that, you know, privatization is better because they—that's the solution to everything. Um, you know, that private is is always yeah, but better. There's never one solution for everything. It might work for one thing. I, I agree. Yeah. I was going to point out the conundrum being that the other faction of folks are those who only trust the government to handle things properly. Well, but that's the huge problem: is everybody is relying on someone else, and that's why I'm saying that somehow everybody is going to have to get involved. Why did arsenic, for example, in the United States get was at too high of a level, and it could have gone like that for a while. Why did it get stopped? Why? Because citizens, because citizens and pregnant mother and people fought and went door to door and started bringing awareness, and and they had to regulate it. But this is that's the problem. I hope the new government is that we're not going to be in a situation where that you know. But it's still. We we are part of the change. We can't just sit home and expect uh, always someone to 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 make the change. Yeah. Well, well, that begs the question, and at the risk of sounding somewhat cynical here, to follow up on what you just said, one one of the things that I found about these types of global situations in the past uh, is that by the time you're hearing about them in the mainstream media, a large portion of the damage tends to have already been done. So my question is, are, in your estimation, are we already in deep trouble with regards to water rights uh, and, and have governments and corporations already been acting behind our backs to determine well, that? Well, no, it's, it's not just water rights. It's a lot of things. And again, I'm not an expert, but I will again uh, mention Peter Gleek, who says, you know, the situation, the situation now with water is not too good, but but not privately. I'm just looking in general. Uh, it's not too good, but but there's still hope that if if in the next five years we change our ways of of handling with water, if we work with our watershed, if we work with with our environment, you know, if there's a balance, then then there is hope, you know. But I. 
it's not just about cooperation. That's the thing. It's not just it's 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 a whole of thing. And um, I think there are good people out there. I mean, I, I don't think it's all dark. I mean, obviously in the film, you know, there's there's a definite pointing at things, and because you you need to wake up people, you know. But I I I think in general there there is hope, but it really depends how we go from now. What do you, you know, think? How we, we water? How we regulate it? How we not build something when we know that this is a recharge area? You know, we have to think of those things. We can't just go on building things if we know that it's a recharge area for certain watershed or rivers. We cannot go on polluting. You know, it's it's like and and just like now, there's a big thing with ball of water. A couple of years ago, no one like even like paid attention. They just kept on buying ball of water, plastic, boom. Some gets recycled, most of them don't, with creating huge plastic in the sea, fish are eating it. I mean, and now all of a sudden there's a huge awareness around, like you have the <clears throat> Minister of the Environment in London who wants to ban bottled of water. You have a lot of places here that says that in public places they want to reintroduce fountain. I mean, it's, we're relearning. We, we get caught up in this sort of of non-stop buying this, that, you know, and, and I think we're relearning. And it's, yeah, th these are definitely um, important issues. And what, what do you think are the most important steps that peoples of various countries around the world need to be doing now to, um, both in terms of, you mentioned the environmental impact of, of things like bottled water, but what about just in terms of securing basic water rights for the future? What, what do we need to be doing uh, as a world population to ensure a better future? No, but that's an expert of water. <laughs> that that's a question for for an expert on water. I I can only tell you as a person. Mm -hmm. Well, people need to watch the people <laughs> need to watch the film. Yes. One issue that applies to China does not obligatory applies to India. One issue that applies to India doesn't obligatory applies to the United States. That might not apply to South Africa. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like it's all different. It's different terrain. It's the, the one thing that connects us all is global warming. That's for sure. Yes, and that and that ties planet. very much that into the water us, issue. That has no passport. That that is everywhere. Like if we don't make effort right away, that, that's already a huge issue. But in terms of like, how do we assure that such and such country? That all depends. You know, I I just came back from India, and there's a man in our film called Rajendra Singh, who is kind of the water Gandhi of India. And what he basically what he did is is he re he restored the spirit of water conservation and, and rainwater harvesting in drought prone area of India. Villages where people had totally left, you know, the young men left, only the old men and the women lived there. Girls were not going to school due to that. And then slowly, with with the community effort, they either built or re, rebuilt some rainwater harvesting. And all of a sudden, the monsoon came, the big rain, and the wells were being refilled, and the fields, the master fields, were growing, and and the whole life there uh, was was uh, working again. And the young men came back. Okay, so right now, Rajendra, for example, against all odds. Is trying to 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 bring the awareness in India how important the Yamuna River and the Ganga rivers are. You know they they feed a lot of the water in some cities, but it's highly polluted. 
It's so pure from its source in the Himalaya, but by the time it gets to Delhi and other places, it's, it's been so polluted and raped. And and I remember a year ago, I helped him a little bit, and I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, where is he going with that, you know? There were a few politicians, a few activists in Delhi, but he didn't get the voice. But now, two years later, the ministers are listening to him. They stopped dams in the Himalaya that's, that, that is injuring the, the rivers. So there is hope. But that's one case. I'm giving you that case, meaning... There is complete hope, and yet myself, I was looking at Rajendra going, Poof, where is he going with this one? He should stay in Rajasthan and concentrate on the rainwater, everything, you know? Mm-hmm. But I just learned a couple of weeks ago that he was sitting with some minister and they stopped some big project that felt would injure the river and the environment, which was unheard of. There's huge money involved in those projects. But, 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 I can talk because I'm not Peter Glick and more than some other expert. I can only talk on a personal matter, and I think awareness on a personal matter is very important, you know, at home. Like, I don't clean my dishes with the same product that I used 10 years ago. I uh, don't buy a bottle of water anymore. I, I try to be aware of those things. But if you want to make it global, I can't talk on in terms of we st- certainly have to change our ways. But in in terms of of globality, I, I I think one of the huge steps is to really pay attention to global warming. Now, right, I mean, every effort that we're gonna make, every effort will be stopped if we don't handle do handle that, because where does the water come from? It's because we need rain. Irina, there's another film that is coming out soon, or actually has already been released, and that is making its way across the the country, uh, sort of on the heels of your film. Um, and that's called Blue Gold World Water Wars. This is based yeah, on the no, book. Yeah, I'm aware of it, because it's some mode uh, book. Yeah, I was, and I was curious if perhaps, uh, you know, it, it addresses many of the same issues and, and, and goes into some different areas. And in fact, uh, Sam Bazo, the director of that film, is scheduled to appear on this program in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, have you met Sam or had the chance to discuss your respective met, uh, filmmaking uh, experiences on covering I the water? No, I have not met Sam. I have spoken, I have through email spoken to him. Uh, at one point, he was wondering if we could dis- distribute our film at the same time, but my distributor kind of said that's, you know, you know how distributors. It doesn't. You can't distribute two film on water at the same time. Yeah, but I, I had heard about his project because I remember he started like maybe five, four years after us or something. So I knew it from Mod. Mod would tell me a little bit about it, but I heard it's great though. Well, we will certainly find out. I, I have uh, our reviewer copy is coming, and uh, we're certainly going to uh, put. There's actually a post up on our website that has a trailer for both uh, your film uh, as well as for the Blue Gold film. So we encourage people to go to bluelivingideas.com to check that out. The film is Flow. The director is Irina Selina, who's been my guest today. The website is flowthefilm.com. Irina, thank you so much for being with us today on the program. You're most welcome. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, as always, to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com.
Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.